Hello and welcome to Rights on the Line. My name is Mary Lawler. I founded Frontline in 2001 because human rights defenders were people who'd always inspired me. Today is International Women's Day. While the spotlight may be on gendered issues today, we know that women human rights defenders or WHRDs as they are called are working tirelessly every day of the year to defend women's rights and the rights of those in their communities. Women human rights defenders have a very special kind of courage because often they have to defy culture and societal norms. They are targeted not only for what they do but for who they are. They face the same threats as their male colleagues from governments and non-state actors alike but additional threats because of their gender. They are much more likely than men to face sexual violence. Often their ability to leave their home or travel is restricted. There are threats and violence against their children. And I, in particular, I am remembering the words of Lana Estremarova, whose mother Natasha was murdered in 2009. Natasha sent Lana to live with her aunt because it was too dangerous for Lana to live with her. Lana and Natasha had been with us in Black Rock, spending some time together. When Natasha was murdered, some time afterwards, Lana said to me that at her mother's funeral, everyone wanted a bit of her. But she felt that they had had her mother all her life and that she wanted her mother in death. The impact on children is really huge. Other threats women human rights defenders face are slurs on their roles as mothers or wives. They face gender-based attacks on their reputation. For example, they can be called prostitutes or bad mothers or witches. And of course, they face social isolation because they can be ostracized by their families or by their community. The reason I set up Frontline was because I was absolutely bowled over by the spirit of human rights defenders who got up in the morning and sometimes didn't know whether they'd be coming home that night. Radia Nasri was one of the human rights defenders who inspired me to start Frontline. She was a Tunisian lawyer working against torture during the time of the dictator Ben Ali. She was herself surveilled, harassed, imprisoned and beaten. Her children were followed to and from school and when she was giving birth to her last baby the police were outside the door. To honour the work of women human rights defenders around the globe we bring you the voices of eight courageous WHRDs themselves. Ruth Kaumuntale is a women human rights defender with the Basangora women's platform to promote the right to land and justice in Uganda. Bisongora community is an area in Uganda and uh, we are the minority, the majority being the Makonjo, who are being discriminative. We have the history whereby Uganda was clocked by forest cover, which was the home of the Batwa, Basongora and Banyarindi, all minority ethnic groups. During colonial times, the British colonialists introduced a policy that required every able-bodied man and woman to provide labor on their cotton plantations. 
Whereas other groups joined the Basongo are refused and kept on their work as pastoralists. As a response to force how our ancestors abandoned their traditional cattle, their livelihood resources that were evicted from our land in 1952 by the colonial government to create Queen Elizabeth National Park in Kasese. When Queen Elizabeth National Park was formally gazetted in 1952, the Basongora people had to leave and find other land to graze their cattle. This forced us to move to other parts of the world like the Democratic Republic of Congo. In 2006 and 2007, over 1,000 Basongora with 10,000 cattle were expelled from the Congo's Virunga National Park and returned to Uganda. Some joined the mainstream Basongora community around the Nyakatonzi area, which borders the park, yet with more than 50,000 cattle. Now in the region, many had to move within the park boundaries. Fearing the negative impact this would cause on the wildlife and ecosystem, the government relocated us various areas outside the park, including onto land that was being used by the Wakonjo, the majority group. This resulted in the great deal of conflict and lives and property were lost. In the last three years, we've lost over 20 community members who stood up to challenge the inhuman acts committed against our people by our brothers and sisters from the majority ethnic Bakonjo group. They have accused us of being favored by the government which is trying to find us land where to settle. The problems we are facing majorly is the right to land and justice. All the problems we are facing as our people has links to the land ownership. Busongora land is majorly communal, which was allocated to us by the government of Uganda. And because of this, the Bakonjo group have gone ahead to join forces to conflict against us and kill us. This conflict has affected the manner in which our people benefit from the public good. We are denied several services. Our children discriminated at school and denied justice in local courts because majority in the public offices from there are Bakonjo. For instance, we are denied fair and public hearing on matters concerning land since most of the local and the lower owners of the councils are headed by the Bakonjo. There is limited collaboration between us, the smaller group, and the Bakonjo because all the NGOs headed by our group, the Basongoras, were seen as enemies for trying to protect the human rights. As a result of this, in the last three years, we've been faced by many challenges. Over 300 people have been killed in the district. Since 2004, we've been getting attacks from the Bakonjo people who in the end have killed many of our colleagues. On the afternoon of 5th July 2014, armed Bakonjo youth from Renzuru Kingdom attacked and killed 11 Basongora activists who had participated in the demarcation of a Songora grazing land that was given to us by the government. They were attacked and hacked to death, creating fear in the Basongora community. Basongora people take center stage advocating for the right to land, and it becomes the immediate target. As the women in the Basongora community were faced by challenges, 
Basongora women face challenges of starting up formal advocacy groups like NGOs or village groups just because the local authorities have refused to approve their community operations, calling branding those harboring suspicious motives. They are required to submit complicated requirements like demanding for highly educated board members, limiting areas of engagement, to mention but a few. Sometimes applications are made and no reply. Women activists who come out to express their views are intimidated, are intimidated by those in authority promising to burn down their homes and kill their livelihoods. Thus denial of peaceful assembly and association. We've had scenarios where women, women livestock is targeted and killed. Women have been targeted because they do not have the manpower to fight back. We've resorted to silent advocacy, asking the stronger ones to speak out on our behalf. Whereas we have a government that is still willing to protect us, it is impossible to have security forces guarding us during grazing at home in the night, our children at school. The situation calls the strategic engagements, which would attract less attention from our tormentors living within us. Since the vocal women are always on the run, due to threats of rape and sexual assaults by the Bakonjos, who've experienced a decline in our sources of income. It is risky to move or tilt land in isolation. The human rights movements in Busongora. The involving human rights situation within the Renzori region has dictated our involvement in human rights work. Whereas protection and promotion of human rights has been perceived a preserve of the state in the community I come from, government's inability to protect us from violent extremists, ethnic groups has aided formation of smaller pressure groups like the Songora Women's Platform to promote the right to learn and justice. After the disappearance of her daughter, brother and three nephews, Graciela Perez Rodriguez has dedicated her life to search for disappeared persons in Mexico. I write these lines as a mother who is dead in life in search of her only daughter, age 13, her brother, and three nephews. They disappeared on 14 of August 2012 when they were traveling on Tamaulipas roads. They, my family, were returning to our home in the state of San Luis Potosí from a trip to the U.S. Disappearing in Tamaulipas, Mexico, is common. Tamaulipas is a fellow state where criminals freely kidnap girls, youth, and adults, regardless of age, sex, or economic conditions. No one seeks, no one listens, no one speaks. In Tamaulipas, there are officially 7,000 files in the missing person public prosecutor's office of the Attorney General's office. For each file, there is at least one missing person, or as in my case, there are five. In addition to this, there are approximately 2,000 unidentified bodies in mass graves. The exact number of missing persons is unknown because the authorities are not interested in correctly assess this problem. 
The state considers these people as victims of kidnappings because their files indicate that the kidnappers ask for a ransom for their release. But in reality, they have had no knowledge of their whereabouts for years. They are also victims of enforced disappearances. Moreover, fear is also an obstacle. There are thousands of parents who to date have still not had the courage to file a complaint. In Tamaulipas, Mexico, in order to look for your loved ones, you must become an investigator, a police agent, and a hunter of missing persons. To date, I have interviewed more than 47 detainees, gone over more than 350 common lands and camps, and discovered more than 48 clandestine mass graves in southern Tamaulipas alone. At the same time, I had to create my own ways of searching, since the security and justice authorities have admitted to not having the preparation to look for the people and being overwhelmed by the phenomenon of enforced disappearance in Mexico. I started the search nine days after their disappearance. I decided to begin this long road when the authorities of Tamaulipas told me, we'll not look for them because it's very dangerous. I did not start looking for clandestine mass graves, nor did I think that I will find buried bodies or incinerated tanks in camps of the organized crime. I've seen ashes, charred remains, shoes, lots of clothes, even girls' clothes, backpacks. It's devastating. I said where people tell me that there is some clue, some evidence, some trace. I use social networks through which anonymous citizens help me, provide me with data, maps, or sketches that can lead me to find my family or any other missing person. I avoid thinking that searching is very risky. I accept the risk with the strength and love for my daughter, my brother, and my nephews, and for the thousands of missing persons who, although not my blood, I still feel as if they were mine. Now we have lost fear and silence, and little by little, a large number of Tamaulipan families, unfortunately not all of them, have found each other, joined together, and have formed the non Profit Civil Association, Milinali Red CFC Civil Association. Through the association, wives, fathers, mothers, and children have formalized the searches in common lands and cities. We have distributed flyers with the photographs of our loved ones along the roads where thousands of people have disappeared. We have worked on the implementation and dissemination of two main instruments of the Citizens Forensic Science Group, which is the Registry for Enforced Disappearance and the Genetic Bank. Living at risk for looking for our loved ones is terrifying. Those of us who look for and talk about the subject of missing persons live under the physical and digital surveillance of the federal government and the state. That's what happened to one of our search partners, Miriam Rodriguez, who was murdered on May 10 on Mother's Day. 
She was murdered by criminals who had been released from jail. She told the authorities about the threats she was receiving, but nobody did anything. Being family members of missing girls, teenagers, young people, adults, and grandmothers have changed our lives. It is clear that we have been able to make our voice heard, to initiate independent actions from a state that has shown little or not interest in the search for our loved ones. And this makes all the difference for many of us. There are Mexicans who continue to pretend that there are no missing persons, but I want you to know that there are also Mexicans who will not let this happen. We will continue struggling to find them, even if I die in the attempt. Así me lleve la vida. Emel Kerma is a Turkish women human rights defender and co-executive coordinator of the Citizens' Assembly. At the time of Emel's testimony at Frontline Defenders Dublin Platform in October 2017, Emel's colleagues in Turkey, the group of human rights defenders known as the Istanbul Ten, were still in prison. I'm here because I'm not in prison. Uh, I was overloaded to go <laughs> into that. Uh, it's strange that I can now explain this smilingly. Maybe you, 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 once you start to persevere, and the most difficult thing is to persevere through absurdity, uh, unpredictability. But anyway, so I, was, I had too much uh, load of reports to finish and things to do. So I didn't go to the workshop at the island. Uh, and I was speaking with my good old friend, Özlem, and all the other nine, uh, all of them my, are my friends. So I was thinking, maybe I'll go there. And the fact that I wasn't there is the fact that I'm not in prison and that I'm here. But this morning, uh, some of uh, our lawyer friends passed me on this message from Peter Stoitner. Uh, It's very difficult to pass in and out messages because our friends are kept uh, in the prison in very restrictive conditions. Uh, and uh, it's an hour under the camera uh, in the presence of guards and they interfere with any paper or writing passed between the lawyer uh, and, the, and, the, and, the, and our friends. So it's very difficult. So Peter sent this and I would like to just save this time for him. So it's not my testimony, it's Peter's from prison that he managed to scribble down uh, without getting it uh, into a trouble with the guards. So Peter says to you all, dear friends and colleagues, our solidarity inside the walls and with you all from the outside is what carries us. I would be with you right now and be sure I am. Right this moment, I am writing a manual for a training on nonviolence and obviously a new guide on preparing for prison. Hugs to all of you. You and our work is more than important. Uh, last time I saw Peter, and hopefully I'm going to see him soon again, uh, was uh, about three months ago. Um, and I know that they're standing in there resilient and resolute. But the main thing is how we stand outside, and I think uh, 
that was the most trying, that has been the most trying time of my life, to be the one on the outside. Tasneem Ahmed Taha Zaki is a human rights lawyer who provides legal assistance to victims of human rights abuses, especially youth and students in the city of El Fasher in the Darfur region of Sudan. She has been most recently working to advocate for victims of sexual assault. Tasneem spoke about her work at the end of the six-month stay in Dublin she took as part of the Frontline Defenders Rest and Respite Programme for Human Rights Defenders. I have been a lawyer for seven years. I started uh, in 2010. In 2012, I started to work as a legal aid lawyer. Specific, I worked in legal aid for uh, rape victims mm-hmm. in court and awareness in IDB's camp and uh, war victims. Yes, sometimes uh, a lot of drugs, crimes, cases also in and awareness to women about human rights. I went to Egypt to protect myself uh, because I have a big problem, a politician and humanitarian problem in Sudan with uh, Sudan government. And I could travel to Egypt to stay. I was uh, staying in detention for three months in Sudan with my colleagues, human rights defenders also in Sudan. I arrested because I defended uh, for rape victims in Darfur and I bring awareness to a lot of victims, human rights victims in Sudan. Sudan government considers uh, humanitarian action in Sudan is political crime. So that we arrested with my colleagues. Rape cases in Darfur actually a lot of village, a lot of women raped, but were raped by military soldiers in Darfur conflict. But in cities and big towns, some cases of rape by civilians also. Uh, so that I defended for uh, these women uh, for military and a uh, social crime and uh, two two types. Yes, military crimes and social crimes. Rape by civilian is maybe we can defend it for them in in court, but rape by military we can't. Uh, defend for victims in courts. My community actually need uh, more awareness and I think it's complicated community. It's a closed mind community and we can't uh, talk about, they can't talk about rape cases uh, so that we need to help a lot of people because rape victims just stay and they have a lot of uh, problem, social problem and physical problem, a lot of uh, social problem about this case. My community considers these rape cases or any sexual crimes as bad reputation, so that we need to this work. I didn't find any problem about uh, bad reputation as, as lawyer, this bad reputation for victims. But sometimes our community considers this is uh, shameful to speak yeah. about rape, about sexual cases, about sexual uh, 
violence, but it doesn't matter for me because mm. I need to do that. A lot of cases I met them and I advise them just continue. Finally, you can find your rights and criminal can punish in court. So that a lot of people uh, respond this advice. This is good. Our, our, our work actually a lot of effect, mm-hmm. positive effect, so that we need to work more. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. that's great. But now when you leave Dublin, you're going to go back to Sudan, not Egypt? I'm not, I'm not sure until now because um, Sudan's situation is so bad these days and there are a lot of people can do this work. Okay. But really I need to go to Sudan and continue. Mm-hmm. If you do go back, what risks do you face? Okay. Because government know about my work and a lot of information on how it can uh, work. Maybe mm, look at me more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. And strict me about something, about some procedure I can, but I can uh, bring awareness and work in the court. This is normal because my job is in, in the court. This is no problem. But as political, as political to consider rape or a lot of crimes as political, this is big problem. Maybe arrest me again, but it doesn't matter. Cindy Joyce from Ireland is a member of the indigenous Minkair community, also known as Travellers. She's a woman human rights defender and doctoral student in the Department of Sociology at the University of Limerick. She has been a vocal advocate for the recognition of the Minkair's ethnicity status in Ireland and continues to campaign for the human rights of Minkair people who suffer the most appalling discrimination, marginalisation and treatment in Ireland. A lot of people um, are shocked to hear that I'm from Ireland, uh, a human rights defender from Ireland, because um, Ireland, Ireland is really great on human rights internationally, and, um, uh, which is brilliant, but internally Ireland is not so great um, with my community coming from my, my perspective. Um, I'm Ireland's, I come from Ireland's only um, indigenous ethnic minority, and many people haven't even heard of, heard of my community. Uh, my community has been uh, persecuted. Um, our culture, our identity, and our lifestyle has been criminalised. Uh, laws have been put in place to stop stop us from practising our culture, and to stop us from being who we are. To stop us from living the way the way that we have lived for for thousands of years. We have been um, put into isolation and segregation into halting sites, um, because we are a nomadic people, and. Um, we're called Irish travellers because of our nomadic uh, lifestyle. Um, literally, uh, people didn't know what to call us. So um, I suppose in English, because we travel as nomadic people, uh, travellers became our name. So to me, it's a colonised name. Our real name is Minkers. That's what we call ourselves in our own language. Um, our language ha- ha- has been di- dying out and... Um, 
I suppose we're, we're starting to revive that. We're starting to revive our language, our culture and identity because it has been so put down. And I suppose I just want to, want to, want to let you know that my community has faced so much atrocities. Um, for, for, example, um, uh, for example, my community is facing um, issues in every sector in Irish society, education, health, uh, and um, accommodation and so forth. We, we suffer from uh, mental health, extremely high levels of mental health in my community. Uh, for example, there's 11% um, of my community die from suicide. Uh, we are seven times more likely to die from suicide than the general population. Uh, myself, personally, I have lost a brother and a sister from suicide. And um, I, I just want to, want to, want to let, let everybody know that as, 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 a, as a minker, I believe that I need to continue my fight and um, our ethnicity has been denied. It was only since the foundation of the state, um, up until March of this year, uh, the Irish government has um, denied us our ethnicity status, calling us failed settled people. So settled people are people that live in houses. And um, uh, given the perception that we are some, somehow broken people, failed people, and that we need to be fixed and we're not normal, and the portrayal of our community across the media, uh, we have been defamed, um, we have been um, dehumanised, and... Uh, so much so, so much so that um, there was a survey that was published um, two weeks ago, and within that survey, the results came out that 91% of the majority population would not marry into my community, 85% would not want to be friends with anybody from my community, four out of ten parents would not want their children to play with children from my community, and. Um, just, just that example of children going into schools and not being taught our history is not taught in schools. Um, so our children go into schools and they feel like that they don't belong. They're asking questions, how do we fit in? And where is our history? Our history has been written for us um, through the perspective of the settled population. And that is part of the issue. And another part of the issue, I suppose, is that um, within the human rights sector, um, within the EU, we are put under the banner of um, Roma because uh, uh, we got, uh, they, they mixed us up with the, with the community of, of Roma people. And that, for me, is an issue because it, it, we're two different communities and it gives us no legal protection uh, whatsoever because um, most, of, most of the legal laws then coming out, protection laws, for, for, they're for Roma people, they're not for traveller people. Um, we are like an afterthought put in. Um, so they say Roma and maybe, maybe um, and, but it's all, it's anti-Gypsium, anti-Roma and not, uh, not anti-traveller or anti-minker. And um, that's uh, an issue that I'm personally fighting at the moment. And um, I'm personally fighting as well for um, living conditions of, of my people. My people live, as I said, live in halting sites. Uh, many of you might not know what halting sites is. Halting sites, just to, just to give you an example, halting sites is... Um, there are pieces of land that is unusable um, for anybody else. They're beside... Um, there besides um, health risks, for example, pylons, so we have radiation coming. Um, we have a lot of our community suffering from respiratory um, diseases uh, uh, from that. Uh, we suffer immortality rates. And um, just, I suppose it's difficult at times because I feel like in, within Ireland, I feel like that um, 
I, I hear continuously that Ireland is so great at human rights, and I feel that I'm alone in that, is that how can people believe such PR um, when it comes to my community? Because I don't feel that Ireland is great in human rights um, for my community. Kim Sor Lim is a land and environmental rights defender from Cambodia. In 2013, she started coordinating a women's network in several communities affected by destructive development, first independently and then as a member of the activist network Mother Nature Cambodia, to advocate and fight against land grabbing and to defend environmental rights. Cambodia is a country that has a lot of natural resources, historical ships and tourist attraction. The land are most of fertilized and most mineral resources can improve the quality, the quality of life of the peoples through this resource. But it is regrettable as all of the resources have been destroyed under the government that 30 years rule of development. My family also a victim by the development of the government. My house has been moved from the middle of the city near Australian Basi nowadays to, the, to near the international airport after the government strait. My father was trying to my, my, my father was trying to do the best to help our community, but we are not win because in 2009. The media is not exhaustive, no choice, we must move. I don't know where is my neighbor live now because they are poor, so they have a possibility to buy the land near the city or in the city. That's why they have to move to live outside the city is near 30 or 40 kilometers. That is not easy for them to work in the city. They have to create the small business at the place that they live uh, or work abroad at Thailand, Korea, Malaysia, or other the country. There are no electricity, no clean water, no school, no hospital, but no choice because of these issues. And my family have a possibility for me to, communi- to commun- continue my university. That's why I decided to drop my university in 2009. And work for land grabbing, and I work for land grabbing community and provide the shortcuts of my experience with land grabbing to land grabbing community and improve the women empowerment and coordinate with the nonviolent advocacy. I live with the victim community and learn from them and I try to find out the reason why which lead to land grabbing. Finally, I found it. Corruption is a big issue. It um, makes my country become a non-respect for human rights. Investment construction 99 years between Cambodia and international company making Cambodia people lose their land. And the developed reason, the company or the powerful people has driven for Cambodia off the land that they are living for a long time ago because of poor knowledge or they don't know about the law, so they scare with all the people or company that come to their community and told them that they are come to develop the community under government protect. Note, all the developed area are many resorts like gold mining, forest, sand mining, oil, industrial, 
and other resources. That's why I decided to join the community of the reading, not only about land grabbing, but also about environmental issues. Cambodia also affects environmental destruction as imminent problem. The, the most several acti activities in this regard is considered to be the countries by deforestation, which also involve national park and wildlife centuries. Overall environmental destruction in Cambodia comprises many different activities, include illegal logistics, purchase of adenators and endemic species and destruction of important wildlife habitat from large-scale construction projects and articular business of the degraded activists involve the local population, Cambodian business and political authority, as well as foreign criminal syndicate and many state-national corporations from all over the world exporting products from the industry of natural resources without tax to the state is make the nation budget lows and affects the livelihood of people and climate change until reaching the human rights violation. Because of this, uh, because of we are working for the for fighting to stop the sand mining, now our two activists in the jail and this is one man already that they are in the jail. And for me, I also fixing with the arresting too. And nowadays, we are uh, we 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 need supporting for the international organization, and we want our two activists really from the jail because they are very important for my team. There are two kind of sand mining, and I can stop one one kind of sand mining, and I can stop the the dam in the community too. Hawa Haruna works on conflict resolution and women's rights in northern Nigeria. Her organization, the Center for Women Empowerment in Nigeria, promotes education for young boys and girls, supports survivors of domestic violence and other types of gender-based violence, and works with internally displaced persons. Every one of us here is a hero. It's not easy being a human rights activist. You become the voice of the voiceless. You protect the oppressed without being protected. You risk your life for others to live. You, me, us, we fight for humanity. My name is Hawa Haruna, and I'm from the most interesting part of Africa. I'm from Nigeria, and the northern part to be precise. I fight for women's rights. Being African is one thing. Being Nigerian is another. Two things the African people respect are religion and culture. Unfortunately, we do not have one culture and we do not have one religion. These two factors meant to bring us together has divided us. In April 2014, on the 14th to be precise, 276 female students were kidnapped from the government secondary school in the town of Chibok in Borno State, my state, Nigeria. Responsibility for the kidnappings was claimed by Boko Haram, an extremist Islamic terrorist organization based in the northeastern Nigeria. Boko Haram means Western education is a sin. These terrorist groups have put fear in the minds of females in the Northeast. But before them, a lot of young ladies grew up and still are growing up with the orientation that 
Women aren't supposed to work or go to school in some parts of Nigeria, especially in the northern part. So they just look forward to getting married really early, having kids, and staying home for the many years of their lives. This is a huge challenge for my team in the Northeast, especially me, because I'm also from the Northeast and a woman. When we have small gatherings to encourage these women to go to school or send their kids to school, some women attack me and say things like, I don't know religion, I don't know tradition, I'll go to hell, I'm here to break marriages, and so on. They don't realize and want to realize they have the rights as women. After the terrorist group abducted over 200 girls, it became worse. Women stayed indoors because they were afraid of being kidnapped. It even became more difficult to convince them because some of them lost their girls and weren't giving them 100% assurance of their security. It took a while for them to let us get through to them, but we never stopped trying. Human rights defenders never stopped trying. Sometimes to win a battle, one must fight one more time. If our goal is to change the entire world, then we have to start with one person. So organize one-on-one -on -one counseling with the women in the villages, organize skill acquisition, and this time it wasn't only about the women, it was about the youths, male and female. Sometimes to end war, one must solve those things that can lead to it. After the crisis, the youths felt redundant. There was nothing for them to do. We had to push and encourage them in various skills to keep their minds busy and prevent them from thinking of joining terrorist groups because the lives of the women were in danger. Hannah Vu is a woman human rights defender from Vietnam, currently doing an internship with the Vietnamese Overseas Initiative for Conscience Empowerment, otherwise known as VOICE, based in the Philippines. I was born in countryside in the south of Vietnam. I had to leave my school when I was 15 because my father passed away early. Then my family didn't have enough money for me to continue in school. After that, I moved to Saigon City, a biggest city of Vietnam, and worked in a clothing company for five years. During that time, I saw many protests of the workers against employers and the people against the government. And also during that time, I was beginning to research about labor rights and human rights. I realized that there are many human rights violations in our country. I myself participated in many, in many demonstrations after that. Last December, I attend secretly a three-month human rights planning program in Vietnam. As you have may already known, Vietnam now is still a one-party state of communists, and the government doesn't want the people to know and practice their basic rights. As careful as we were, our training program was attacked by the government just after one month. Police destroyed and took away all our phones and computers. They took me and my friend to the police stations. After eight hours of interrogated, they told me that I could go home. But on the way home, I was attacked by five policemen. They banged my head, my face, and my chest repeatedly in 10 minutes. They left when I was down on the ground. I don't know why, but when I was crying, I still try to tell them, I don't hate you. I don't hate you at all. My God bless you. The following days, I asked myself many times, what did I do wrong? Why were they hitting me? Just because I want to learn about my rights. The attack made me physically make weak, but, strong, but mentally stronger. 
more than ever. I believe strongly in the human rights, if not for myself, then for my family and my friend. I had to escape Vietnam and went to Cambodia before coming to the Philippines, where boys located. Frontline Defenders was founded in Dublin in 2001 to provide resources for the security and protection of human rights defenders at risk around the world. Rights on the Line is a new podcast initiative produced in-house by Frontline Defenders to present the work, the struggles and the perspectives of HRDs at risk. Special thanks for this episode goes to WHRD's Ruth Comentale, Emil Kuma, Cindy Joyce, Kim Saw Lim, Graciela Perez-Rodriguez, Tasneem Ahmed Tahazaki, Hawa Haruna and Hannah Vu, as well as Daniela Reveron and Frontline Defenders founder Mary Lawler for hosting this episode and sharing her insights with Rights on the Line. Music in this episode is from Love Wins by Lee Rosevere.